Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is New Rust Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is a news episode about Rust 1.21 and 1.22. Listeners will notice that this has two releases in it and that I missed the 1.21 release date. There's a couple good reasons for that. I was moving across the country and prepping for Rust Belt Rust, which was a fabulous conference. If it happens again next year, you should definitely go. It was a really nice event, large enough to be interesting, but small enough that you could meet many of the people there. And the micro-interviews I recorded there, which this episode will come out right in the middle of, were a blast. It was really neat to see just how wide the range of attendees was. From one person I interviewed who had done no Rust at all before showing up, to others who have been working on Rust since well before 1.0. Now I'm back on track, and happy to be, though. So let's talk about news that has happened through the interval while Rust 1.21 and 1.22 came out. Rust 1.21 came out October 12, 2017. As is often the case, it was not an especially large release, and, as usual, that's not a bad thing in my opinion. 1.21 was essentially a quality-of-life improvement in a couple areas. There are some places where you have locally declared variables, but if you could treat them as static, things would just work, instead of having to have them be static allocated and then ending up with local scope lifetimes, which can tell you that things can't be borrowed appropriately. Well, now they are treated as static and therefore do just work. This is one of many small things that the Rust compiler team has done as part of this year's ergonomics initiatives. And those things all take a lot of small pieces of the language that intuitively seem like they should be fine and smarten up the language so they are fine. It just sands off some of the rough edges. The standard library, as of 1.21, now includes the for each method on the iterator trait. For a long time, you've been able to do this via a crate, but Now, you don't have to use a crate. It's present in the standard library. Often, of course, you just use a for loop for things that you need to iterate over and then do effectful operations. But it turns out that sometimes when you've chained together a bunch of iterator calls and you want to do some effectful operation at the end of that sequence of iterator methods, having a dot for each call is really handy. So now you can. 1.21 was also the first release to support shipping a preview of the Rust language server via Rustup. And the RLS is coming soon ish, to stable. Nick Cameron wrote a blog post titled When Will the RLS Be Released between the 1.21 and 1.22 releases, and the goal is that it should be in a non-preview stable state by early 2018. I've linked that blog post in the show notes so you can get the details there. One other neat little library stabilization that happened with 1.21, you can now use the function standard mem discriminant to be able to check the specific discriminant of an enum type. This lets you compare whether two items you're dealing with are the same variant of an enum without having to bother with the quality of the underlying data and without needing to do a match expression to check this. That's not a super common need, but even in my still relatively limited experience, it's something I've wanted. Finally, Cargo got a nice little feature for supporting what is, in reality, a pretty common use case, where you need to patch a particular feature in a dependency and it hasn't been upstreamed yet. You can, as of 1.21, just use the patch key in your cargo.toml to override where to look up a given dependency, normally on your local file system rather than on crates.io. 
Rust 1.22 was a nice Thanksgiving present for those of us in the United States. It came out November 22nd, instead of Thursday the 23rd, since that was the holiday. And like 1.21, this was a pretty small release, but it had one very nice quality of life improvement in it, and the kind that will make a pretty big difference in a lot of the code we write. That quality of life feature is the first stable implementation of the try trait for something besides result. You might better know the try trait as the trait which makes the question mark operator work as a kind of quick return for functions when you have a bunch of different results and you want to quickly return error cases and only proceed if you have an OK case. Rust 1.22 stabilizes impl try for option, so you can now use the question mark to do the same kind of immediate return if you have a none, and continue through the body of your function only if you have a sum. This kind of trait-based syntactic sugar helps a ton when you have a function with an option return type, and which has a number of places where it might return nothing. It just makes your code read a lot more smoothly. In the future, you'll actually be able to freely use this with a mix of both option and result return types. So if you have a function which gets a bunch of options but needs to return a result or vice versa, you'll be able to use the question mark operator there. The reason is that result and option both implement both the into and from traits for each other. So if you have an option, you can convert it easily to a result and vice versa. That's not there with 1.22, but it is there on Nightly, so coming soon. One other important note about 1.22, and you'll just get this automatically if you're using RustUp, and for the most part, you should just be using RustUp. There are actually two 1.22 releases, 1.22.0, which is the normal release, and 1.22.1, which is what you'll all end up with, which fixed a problem in Cargo with the latest version of macOS. Just run RustUp update stable and you'll get 1.22.1 automatically. So that's all the news for Rust itself. But there are some other neat things going on around the ecosystem since Rust 1.20 came out, so we'll talk about those a bit too. One thing I wanted to mention again, though I mentioned it in my special 50th episode, is the Rusty Spike podcast, which Jonathan Turner hosts. Those episodes are roughly three to five minutes long, and Jonathan has settled into a, a really nice rhythm and routine with those episodes. It's a great show, and it ends up covering things at a much more granular level than these new Rustation news episodes do. So I think they end up being really nicely complimentary as podcasts. I strongly encourage you to subscribe. He's doing great work. We've also seen the end of the Rust conference season for this year. Sad, but... Next year's coming. We had the Fall Rustfest event in Zurich back at the end of September, and as I alluded to at the start of this episode, Rust Belt Rust at the end of October. The videos from Rustfest are already up, so you can go check those out at their website. Videos from Rust Belt Rust are not out yet, but you should keep your eyes on their YouTube channel. Last year they came out a couple months after the conference, and that's pretty common, so probably December or January you'll see them. In the meantime, if you want to see the content for my talk at Rust Belt Rust, both the script and the slides are on my personal website, and I'll have them linked in the show notes. Now, on to other community things. Since Rust came out, people have been iterating on the best ways to do error handling in large projects. The result type we have is really nice for making sure you have type-level control over the way your errors are handled. 
But there's a big downside to using results throughout your code base, and you get the same basic downside whichever of the two major approaches you take. And the two approaches you take when dealing with results throughout your code base are, one, you can end up with a result wrapping a huge variety of error types as their own enum. So result t, comma my error, and my error has a bunch of different types of errors that can crop up in your library or application. That way you still have a single result type you can use throughout your application or your library. That's great, but we'll talk about that enum in a second. Or you can end up with a bunch of different and much more specific result error types, which represent all the different kinds of failures as different result types. And then you end up writing a bunch of conversions between those error types for transitioning between different parts of your library or application. Both of those involve a lot of boilerplate. Either you end up writing an enormous number of cases and then your match expressions become crazy. That's option one. Or you end up writing a ton of conversions. Neither of those is great. They work, and for all the reasons we've talked about before on the show, they are very much preferable to exceptions. But it would be nice not to have to write so much of that boilerplate while still getting those benefits. For the first couple of years of Rust since 1.0, the go-to solution for this has been the error chain crate, which I will link in the show notes for reference. As people used it in practice, though, a number of limitations and frustrations with the crate reared their heads. And so Rust core contributor Without Boats recently released the failure crate, which aims to take all the lessons learned from the error chain work and improve on its design a bit. I plan to dedicate a whole Crates You Should Know episode to failure at some point relatively soon. It's an exciting development. It's another part of that ergonomics initiative this year. And although the crate is still pretty early in its development, it looks really nice. Next up, WebAssembly. WebAssembly, or WASM, is a format for targeting browsers with compiled code. Not compiled to JavaScript code, compiled code. Just last week, Alex Crichton added early support for compiling to Wasm directly from Rust. While you've been able to compile to Wasm with Rust for a while, it's been a pretty hairy process, which involved a tool called Mscriptum. And Mscriptum was really designed for C and C++ toolchains, and specifically for things like porting games to the browser. As a result, many, perhaps even most places we would want to use Rust, just for speeding up business logic or things like that, don't really need all the extra runtime pieces that Mscriptum supplied. So now, courtesy of Alex Crichton's work, we can ship zero runtime Rust code straight into browsers using the Rust compiler itself. No more Mscriptum, and we won't have all the extra runtime baggage with it either. For someone like me, who writes TypeScript all day, every day, and would love to be able to add Rust to my client-side toolbox in some way or another, this is just incredibly exciting. I will definitely have an episode on this in the next few months as well. Note that this is very much early support, and lots of things probably won't work the way you expect if you try it, and lots of things are going to be changing and in flux over the next several months. But it is a huge step for Rust, and a huge step for WebAssembly, and it starts to open the door for Rust to become something like the C of the web. That would be awesome. Last, but not least for today's episode, is something contributed by the community via the RFC process. Support for pulling in external markdown files as documentation for an item in your crate. 
The single most obvious place that this is a win is it lets you reuse your readme as the source for the docs for the crate itself. So your crate item, if you wanted your readme and your main crate documentation item to be the same, you had to manually copy back and forth between the two. Now, on nightly rust at least, and hopefully it'll land on stable in about two releases, hopefully not more than three, you can just mark any item with a doc include attribute, which points to the file location relative to the source directory, and it'll pull the text of that in for you as documentation. So for example, for your readme, you might add this line to the lib.rs item in the root of your crate. Hashtag exclamation point, which marks that this is an attribute for the parent item, the containing item. Doc, open parens, include equals path to the readme. So in this case, it would be something like dot dot slash readme.md. Close quote, close parens, and then close the square braces that wrap around an attribute. So in other words, it's just a normal attribute with an argument. If you need a refresh on attributes, you can go back and listen to episode seven, where I introduced them and discussed them in some detail. This particular feature is something I have wanted for ages, and I'm incredibly excited about it. Not least because as a result, the script for this show, this episode, and all future episodes, and soon enough all previous episodes too, will just be attached to the show notes for the episode on a script or transcript struct as appropriate. So to see it in practice, all you need to do is look at the source code for this episode. I've had scripts for most episodes and you've always been able to find them on GitHub, but attaching them was a lot of manual work and I frankly just hadn't made the time to do it. And now, happily, I don't have to. I am perhaps absurdly excited about this particular feature. And that's a wrap on this news episode. The next news episode should come out in about six weeks when Rust 1.23 comes out. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy the remaining Rust Belt Rust micro-interviews, and you can also look forward to three interviews with participants in the Increasing Rust's Reach program, which I talked about in a news episode several months back. Those interviews will be released throughout December. Thanks as always to this month's $10 or more sponsors. Aaron Turin, Alexander Payne, Anthony Deschamps, Chris Palmer, Benam Esfabod, Dan Abrams, Daniel Collin, David W. Allen, John Chandler, Matt Rudder, Nathan Scully, Nick Stevens, Olushei Sonaya, Peter Tillemans, Olaf Leidinger, Rafe Levine, and Vesa Kailavirta. If you're enjoying the show, I would love it if you told others about it so that they can learn about Rust. You can also support the show by recommending it in podcast directories like iTunes or by sharing it on social media. And if you're feeling extra generous, you too can support the show financially, whether in an ongoing fashion via patreon.com slash or via a one-off. I've got a number of services listed on the show website where you can send me something just once. You can find show notes for this episode as well, including that attached episode script at newrustation.com slash show underscore notes slash news slash rust underscore one underscore 21 underscore one underscore 22. That's long. Just go to the news section and you'll find it. I'm on Twitter and GitHub at Chris Kreitcho, and the show is on Twitter at NewRustStation. You can also email me at hello at NewRustStation.com. I've gotten a pretty great stockpile of show ideas from people sending me requests both on Twitter and via email. Please do keep it up. And until next time, happy coding. Happy coding.